In this episode of Murderous Roots, we're going to continue our discussion on Gary Ridgway's family. Sit back and join us as we explore Gary's father's side of the family. And this is not an episode you want to miss because (laughs) we found some very surprising things, including even more murder. So let's get started. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. We're moving now over to Gary's paternal grandparents. We'll start with Thomas Newton Ridgway Sr., who was born in Stark, Kentucky, on August 22nd, 1893. This was in Elliott County, Kentucky. Does that sound familiar, Miss Zelda? Elliott County? Yes, it does! <laughs> yes, this was Because the- Kentucky inspires murder. Well, I was going to say, it's because the area that Charles Manson's family was from. Mm-hmm. Oh. Anyhow, Senior was the sixth of at least ten children born to Isaac Newton Ridgeway and Nancy Susan Maggard. Good name. Senior and his siblings, particularly the brothers, grew up helping on the family farm. By 1920, though, Senior had left Kentucky and was boarding with the family in Carlsbad, New Mexico, where he worked as a pipe fitter for the railroad water service. Two years later, on August 27, 1922, Tom Senior married Gladys Sedona Vivens in Roswell, New Mexico. He was 29. She was 19. Ew. Yeah. I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Was he he was based out of Kentucky at that point though? Yeah, he had moved to Carlsbad by 1920. Okay. So he was in New Mexico. Okay. Now Gladys was the fourth child born to Thomas F. Bivens of Mississippi and Mary Sedona Bollinger of Missouri on June 6, 1903 in Oklahoma. I'm not sure when her family moved to New Mexico because they seem to avoid the 1910 and 1920 censuses. Now, that could be a census taker error, or they were between places at the time. But as mentioned before, the Ridgeway family moved to Kentucky, then back to New Mexico, and then back to Kentucky again between 1925 and 1935. In 1940s, Senior was working as a highway laborer in Roswell. I don't know much more on them, but they did remain in Roswell. Senior died in September 1971, and Gladys followed two years later in August 1973. I wonder if it was the death of his grandparents that triggered this, because he started actually, they think he murdered hookers as early as 1973. It could be. I just. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. And Tom Jr., for a short time, was raised by his maternal grandparents, if you recall. So. All right. We will start with the Ridgeway line of the family. Okay. So, great grandfather to Gary was Isaac Newton Ridgeway. He was born in March 1847 in Kentucky. Now, Isaac Newton went by the name Newton. Ah. When the Civil War began, he was 14. Soon after he turned 18, Newton enlisted along with his 16 and a half year old brother John in the in Company K of the 53rd Kentucky Infantry for the Union oh. on April 11th, 1865. Just three days, yeah, just three days before Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Many may believe that the war ended soon after that, but it didn't. Still going. Yep. <laughs> While Lee's surrendering at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th was significant, it only marked the beginning of the end because Lee didn't surrender for the whole Confederacy, just his Army of Northern Virginia. 
Several Confederate forces were still active. In fact, the war did not officially come to an end until August 1866, after Texas created a new state government that President Andrew Johnson was willing to acknowledge. That said, fighting did end for the most part by August 1865. It was in September 1865 that both Newton and his brother John mustered out of service in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, we've seen this before, Zelda, but Newton would not marry for several more years. Well, you know, they were rebuilding after the war. Yeah. Did he? Please tell me he didn't marry a 12-year-old. No, he didn't marry a 12-year-old. And what, Mira? (laughs) 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 Okay. Uh, But also, they fought for the Union. Yes. Yeah, a lot of Kentucky did. Yeah, well, Kentucky, it was like a really mix. I mean, it was a border state. Well, then what the hell happened to it? I know. It's a border state. It was part of the compromise, wasn't it? That they were, if they sided with the Union, they could still keep slaves, like Missouri? I, I just know it was one of the border states during the time. I mean, nobody got to keep the slaves after the war was over, but... Right. But during the war. Yeah. Now, I have no idea where he was in 1870, but around 1876, at the age of 29, Newton married. Now, I did say he did not marry a 12-year-old. Keep that in mind, Zelda. She was married, but he married 16-year-old Nancy Susan Maggard. Ew. <laughs> 29. I know. And 16. Wow. Mm. Ew. Nancy was the daughter of James K. Maggard and Abigail, not Abigail, but Abigail Pennington. She was born in January 1860 in Carter County, Kentucky, the second child and first daughter of eight. Newton and Nancy would have seven boys and three girls, William, Benjamin Franklin, Pearl, Wirt, John, Thomas Sr., Charles Augustus. That's what I'm talking about. Anna. Arlie, and Opal. (laughs) Well, they have good names, these people. They do. At least two of the sons would never marry. Well, at least one of the sons would never marry, I should say, because I did see something yesterday that indicated that um, the second one did marry at some point. Um, But that was William. His other brother, John, also was with him, and they remained on the farm helping their parents for a long time. So if John got married, it was later much later good boys yeah good boys taking care of the parents when newton died in 1925 at the age of 78 nancy continued to run the farm in the 1930 census she was listed as a farm manager and she would live to be 92 passing away in february 1952 nancy even outlived her eldest son william who died at 64 in 1942 on christmas day when researching, I found his World War I card and may know why he never married. He was described as being feeble-minded. Mm. So that could be a couple different things, but I think it was also commonly used for somebody with Down syndrome. Well, that's okay. That is, oh, wow. So many questions. Right. But back then, I mean, if you were different or you weren't so bright or you had some deficiency. You either had to be a serial serial killer or you had to make it work. Or or you were looked at as you had to stay at home, you couldn't marry, you had to stay with your family, or you had to be institutionalized if that was a possibility. So did he actually serve in the military? No. He just had to fill out the draft card like everybody else did. And that was the reason why he could not serve. Oh, oh, okay. So, all right. I wasn't sure if they were like, he's feeble-minded, but they make great cannon fodder. No, Because no, no, back no. then, they cared not for people's lives. Yeah, it was part of the description, and they say, is there a reason this person should not serve? And that was the excuse. Okay. Sadly, William wasn't the only child Nancy outlived. Son Benjamin died at age 68 in 1949. He had a wife and at least three children. And son Wirt, who married only 10 years prior, 
at the age of 45 to a young lady aged 21. Oh my gosh. Died a month before brother William in November 1942, leaving behind at least five children, all daughters. Several months before his death, he filled out, or it was filled out for him, a World War II draft card where he was described as incompetent, therefore unable to serve. Given that he was married with a family, and nothing like this was mentioned on his World War I draft card, or in any census, I can't help but wonder if something like a stroke happened in the months before his death at age 55. His cause of death was listed as endocarditis. What's that? Oh my gosh. Heart it's, attack. Mm-hmm. Functionally. Your heart. Your heart. Um, endocarditis is an inflammation of the the lining around your heart and um, causes like a heart attack. So I think that would fit with possibility of a stroke or something or a heart attack or something where he was unable to do. Inflammation uh-huh. and stroke go nicely, sadly. Yeah. So that's a very reasonable assumption. Now, Newton's parents were Benjamin Bridgeway and Jane Gard. Benjamin was born in 1818 in Virginia. I have no idea who his parents were. Around 1846, Benjamin married Jane Gard. Benjamin's wife, Jane, was born in Pennsylvania in 1825. Her parentage is a big question, and I found several trees suggesting that she was the daughter of Hiram Gard and Adeline Nellie Gage Dunsmore. At first, I thought I'd mention it in passing, like, oh, this is what the theory is, because I couldn't find the link myself. However... <laughs> The closer I looked, the more I knew that these trees are wrong. Please, people, stop copying trees blindly. Use your brains. Because Jane, the daughter of Hiram, was actually Martha Jane, born 11 years after Jane Gard Bridgeway. Since Benjamin and Jane had their first child, Newton, in 1847, this rules out Martha Jane completely because, well, if you're doing the math, Hiram's daughter Jane was 11 when Newton was born. Nope. Nope. You're like, do no. the math. <laughs> it's just a math problem. That's so awesome that you picked one. that up, though. You know, because it, because it's, you see it, you see it all over the place, not just in genetic trees, by the way. Well, people just like to copy, like, oh, this person's got the tree. Let me just copy it and go. And they're not looking at the details. And right. It's important to do that. Additionally, I found out Martha Jane's marriage record to an Isaac Strickler in Ohio in 1857. This guard's family never left Ohio. So Benjamin and Jane probably got married in Kentucky. If they never left Ohio, that can't be it. But I do believe I know who Jane's parents are. But I have no solid proof. So, like, I'm missing um, a will, birth records, different little things. So this is only a theory, but I will put forward my theory here. Jane's father was likely John Guard, born December 1795 in Pennsylvania, who married a Jane. If I'm correct, daughter Jane, wife of Benjamin Ridgeway, was child number two of eight children. The others being William, Mahala, John, Mary, Noah, Isabel, and Hiram. An 1840 census supports this to a degree with the ages they were in 1850 and so on. In 1830, the family lived in Georgia's Pennsylvania. By 1840, they had moved to Greenup County, Kentucky. I think they moved there because the father worked as a collier, which is a coal miner. The family was quite poor in 1860. They owned no real estate, and their personal estate was valued at $50. Kind of like mine. (laughs) Um, This is likely why I can't find a will or in-depth probate records after he died in March 1867 at 71. His wife, Jane, was born in 1803, died 12 years previously at age 52. 52? Now, 
Huh. Mm-hmm. And if they were poor, they probably didn't have the money to see the doctor even. Right. Benjamin and Jane had at least nine children, including one set of twins, Joseph and Josephine. What? Were they fraternal? Yeah. Yep. Joseph and Josephine. Benjamin died around 67 in Ashland, Kentucky. Wife Jane died nine years later around age 69. They're very young. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to return to Nancy Susan Maggard Ridgway, Gary's great-grandmother. I found a lovely write-up on her from around 1952 as part of some sort of newsletter, and I thought I would share some from it. And it says this. I don't know who wrote this, but it's lovely. 85 years ago, little six-year-old Nancy lived with her family, mother and father, Mr. James Maggard, near Bruin, Kentucky. This was during the close of the Civil War. Mrs. Nancy remembers vividly the bitter end of the Civil War and difficult times that followed. Back in those days, she says, we had no roads in Elliott and Carter County, and we thought we were flying when we finally got the first horse and buggy. Now we have good roads with cars and trucks to go in, and this way of travel is better. Mrs. Nancy says we are happy to have our electricity. It's the best of all. Uh, Mrs. John Ridgway, the daughter-in-law, tells us that Mrs. Nancy is well and hearty and that she is the mother of 12 children and raised 10 to be good citizens for this country. Thank God. Yes. She did this in 1952, and she died soon after that write-up. Wow. So Nancy's father was James K. Maggard. He was born in March 1836 in Letcher County, Kentucky, a county that sits along the um, southwest Virginia border just north of Big Stone Gap, Virginia. Ah, Big Stone Gap, the place for the Ariana, um, Adriana novels. Um, uh, it, Trigliani? Trigliani, Adriana Trigli- Trigliani. Yep, the first Big book. Big Stone was, Gap. Mm-hmm. I read the first book. I haven't read them all. The son of a pastor and farmer, James grew up in Letcher County. Then in 1857, he married Abby Gail Pennington from Lawrence County, Kentucky. The couple would first settle in Carter County, but would ultimately settle in Cracker Neck, Kentucky, in Elliott County, just to the what west. What was that name again? Cracker, Cracker Neck. Neck? Mm-hmm. I want to know the history of that town I know. Instantly. I love the name. Along the way, they had at least eight children. It's likely their youngest, Thomas, was a bit of a surprise as he was born when Abby was 44 years old, six years after the next youngest son, James. Wow. Who... And now James, in 1900, listed his occupation as artist. <laughs> I've never seen that before. No? Yeah. Because very few people, like, what, yeah, so many questions. By 1910, James and Abby lived with youngest son Thomas and his family. From the census data, I never had the impression that the family was well-to-do, rather making just enough to provide for the family. So imagine my surprise when I discovered the following in the Olive Hill Herald on November 28, 1940. History of the Elliott County Diamond Fields. This property comprises two tracts of land known as the Charles Ison Tract and the Bill Griffith Tract. It goes on to explain that Ison and his wife gave all their mineral and timber rights to someone else in 1876. And that person gave another some interest in the tract. And then those two, J.T. Ratcliffe and Taylor Warnock, gave their interest to the Kentucky Diamond Mining and Development Company. It seems a court case on this tract reached the Kentucky Court of Appeals with a separate diamond company claiming rights to the diamonds, saying that Eisen only gave rights to the land, not the diamonds. Hmm. Yeah, I know. So mineral rights, essentially. Right. Mineral rights, yep. But the judge ruled against this contention. Now, sometime between 1870, and this is a quote from the article, sometime between 1877 and 1880, Bill Griffith, owner of the other tract, conveyed to James Maggard all the mineral rights and one acre of surface to be afterwards selected. 
This acre of land was never definitely located, and the Maggard heirs still had the title there, too. James Maggard conveyed a 1-8 or 3-8 interest in and to this claim to James Fultz. Fultz is dead, leaving a widow and children. James Maggard is dead, leaving a widow and seven heirs, one of whom has since died. Then it lists the heirs. I did look into the Kentucky Diamond Company, who bought the land from the Ratcliffe and Warnock, and it seems they had headquarters in Minneapolis, which I found interesting. They're called Kentucky Diamond Mining, and they're in Minneapolis. Yeah. But in 1905, there was a big, there. It, this made national news about this, because there was a David Draper of Johannesburg, South Africa, who was expressing interest in developing the land. Hmm. And I never found what happened with it hmm. since. But there was silver and gold were also found on the land. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing James Maggard had some land that was worth more than he ever realized. Yeah. Wow. So I did a little bit of something to see Cracker's mm-hmm. Neck to see like what we could find out. There's not much. Uh-huh. It is now called Newfoundland um, and it is an unincorporated part of Kentucky. So apparently it never really caught on. But um, glancing at this article and I'm going to send it to you, Denise. It's from 1882. Mm-hmm. I'll send it to you too, Mira. I'm not meaning to exclude you from this conversation where it looks like it was an area that saw many places to hide pirate booty and the and things people stole so um because you know crackers was a derogatory term of people from the north and it would not surprise me if that's in fact why it was called that so i'm going to send this to you and Mm. we shall just because that is such a strange name it is i love it though Yeah. yeah Like I'm kind of bummed it's not used anymore. Yeah, seriously. There are a couple of other places in the country with similar names, just, you know, FYI. But it was just one of those things where, you know, we've gotten away. I mean, there aren't a lot of new towns anymore to really, like, give new names. But there seems to be a period of time in the, the birth of our nation that we got really clever with names. And it's, mm-hmm. like, super fun. Like, And in Arizona, there's lots of places like Bloody Basin or, you know, it's just... I love this. I know. I love this. The great thing about being a newish country is you get fun names, you know? Yes. Okay. Now we're going to go to Gary's third great-grandfather. James's father was Reverend David Long Dave Maggard. He was born to Samuel and Rebecca, the fifth of 12 children. And it seems his parents settled in Kentucky by the time Long Dave was 10. Oh, Dave was born in April 1804. He would marry Kentucky native Susanna Harrison, or Susie, who was born in April 1805. Hmm. Yes, Mira? Um, I thought you were waving, like, oh, no, no. Like, call on me, pick me. No. Mr. (laughs) Carter. No, no, I'm just listening. I'm just listening. Okay, all I know about Susie is her father was John Harrison. Anyhow, Long Dave was a preacher as well as a farmer. And I have a postmaster alert. (gasps) Do tell. I, I have a thing for postmasters. Yes. On twenty on January 22nd, 1861, Long Dave was appointed as the postmaster of Bruin, Kentucky, in Carter County for nine months. Ooh. Well, he was obviously a man with a good heart. Yes. You would hope that a pastor would be, but that's not always guaranteed. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, in fact, we studied a pastor who was evil. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Jim Jones. Jim Jones. Oh, I didn't know about that. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. I'll have to listen to that podcast because the second you say preacher, I'm like, mm-hmm. I do not trust them. I do not trust them. 
I don't trust preachers. I don't trust priests. Aw. Okay. Long Dave would die in February 1889 at the age of 84. His wife of at least 66 years followed. Wow. Mm -hmm. 11 months. Yeah, they were married 66 years when he died. 11 months later, she died at age 84 in January 1890. You know what? That actually speaks well of their marriage. Yeah. Or her inability to run away. Um, (laughs) When I was a youngin, um, the oldest married couple I'd ever met had been married 72 years. And she was, at the time I met them, she, they were both in their 90s. But when they had gotten married, she had just turned 16 and he had just turned 17. Because, you know, back in the day. they were both young. Oh, yeah. They were both babies. And I was like, okay, you have to tell me what is the secret for this law? And they loved each other. They held hands. They were super cute. How did this happen? And she's like, the wife turned and she goes, oh, honey, it's work. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, yeah, pretty much it is. So I just thought they were the cutest couple. Okay, back to you, Denise. Okay, now this is where some things get rather interesting. Hmm. As I mentioned, Dave was one of 12 children, seven boys and five girls. And we will talk about two of his siblings, one being Henry and the youngest in the family, his sister, Elizabeth or Betsy. Betsy was 19 years his junior, for your information. And we will start with her on this. Sometime around the early 1840s, Betsy married a man by the name of Gilbert Creech. During the Civil War, at around 42 or so years old, with at least seven children at home, the last one just a baby, Gilbert enlisted in Company B of the Harlan County Battalion for the Union on October 13, 1862. But he would only be in the war for six months before he was executed. What? Oh, what happened? Yes. I thought you might ask. So this is from, a, 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 I don't know who wrote it. Again, something called The Execution of Gilbert Creech. What? On a, yep. On April 14th, on April 14th, 1863, Gilbert Creech, his brother Elijah, and about 50 other Union home guards were captured by Benjamin Cottle's men who were under the command of Major Thomas J. Chenoweth, 13th Kentucky Cavalry, on Leatherwood Creek in Perry County. They were all tried for various crimes and paroled, with the one exception being Gilbert Creech. But he was melty. Yeah. After being brought to trial at the Confederate camp, it was concluded that he had killed and robbed an elderly man and woman. He was also charged with having waylaid and shot Confederate soldiers. Gilbert Creech was court-martialed and found guilty of murder, robbery, and other crimes. Major Chinoweth asked Creech if he had been guilty of bushwhacking his Confederates. Gilbert answered, yes, and I will bushwhack again. That's what it was. I told you he was mouthy. (laughs) Yep. Major Chinowitz's simple and straightforward answer was, it's damned uncertain. Gilbert Creech was sentenced to be shot by a firing squad of 14 soldiers, representing seven companies of the 13th Kentucky Cavalry. Immediately before he was shot, when the firing squad was ordered to take aim, Creech patted himself on the chest and told everyone present that he was ready. It was said by some who were present that Gilbert Creech was probably one of the most daring and courageous men ever to face a firing squad. Gilbert Creech was executed on April 14, 1863 at the Brashear Salt Works in Perry County, Kentucky. Post-war indictments were brought from 1865 to 1867 against the men involved in the execution, but it was found that they acted with proper military conduct and were pardoned by the governor. Oh my god! Okay, so it's so (laughs) funny, right before you brought that up, I was thinking to myself, 
when did they get on the wrong side of history? Okay. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think we always get this lucky. Do you get this lucky when you see somebody who clearly has either psychopathy or sociopathy to be able to face a firing squad and say, I'm ready? Oh, yeah. What? So I think we might be seeing the inklings of mental illness. Yeah, but this is a in-law, so it's not even... Damn it. He married into the family. But it's a good point. I was excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I have to say, one of the things that we've discovered about the Civil War, both through this research and other research, is that people had a very dual existence for things they did Mm -hmm. in wartime. Sure. And who they were after and who they were before. Sure, sure, sure. And and it, it is fascinating to me to hear some of these stories of people who committed atrocities right. and then walked away, you know, right. and it's just, um, ideology is a powerful force. Yeah. It's, um, it's curious, but I have to say, I find it interesting that the, the guy who was mouthy, as Mira said, was like, I would bushwhack again, you know, like okay. I am so in the right here and I'm thinking, wow, this reminds me of a few people who walked into the Capitol a couple weeks ago. And, yeah. You know? Yes. It, we're humans, and humans do dumbass things for dumbass reasons. We also do... <sighs> okay, I'm going to word this. I'm going to word it this way. I think you'll know what I mean. We also do atrocious things for the right reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? right? So we have this way of justifying certain primal, shall we call them? Yeah. Impulses mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. if it's in the if where, you know, if it's the right ideology. Yeah. You know, right. Or if you know what I mean, because committing an atrocity is such a different animal than doing something really fucking horrible to defend yourself. Right. Right. I get that. Because like, you know, if a serial killer is coming at you and you're like, holy shit, that's Gary Ridgeway. I'm going to kill you now <laughs> because it's you or me right. and I got a kid. So right. you're going down. Right. Now, just three years later, there would be another tragedy in the family. This one involving Long Dave's older brother, Henry. So this is three years later, 1866. Henry encountered the notorious killer, Talton Hall, otherwise known as Bad Talt Hall. Now, you probably never heard of him. Nope. And yet I'm saying he's notorious, but he was notorious at the time. And you'll find out why. Talton Hall was born in October 1849 in Letcher County, Kentucky. In October 1862, he joined the Civil War on the side of the Confederates. After the war, Bad Talt would start his murder spree. His first victim? None other than Gary Ridgway's third great-granduncle, Henry Maggard, born in 1801. The incident happened in April 1866 when Talt was 14 and Henry was 65. From Talt Hall's Find a Grave page, I found the following. Hall comes from desperate stock. His father, Old Dave Hall, killed several men in private brawls. <laughs> Halton Hall is said to have committed his first murder when 14 years old. The victim, Henry Maggard, was an old man. Some say the band of which Hall was a member took Maggard from his home, band. made him kneel, band, like a game, made him kneel on a log and let the boy shoot him in the back. Hall did go on trial for Henry's murder, but claimed self-defense and got off. Shooting him in the back? Mm-hmm. What, what, what? And that would not be his last acquittal. What? Sorry. Yeah. Talt ran with this game, and he was arrested frequently, always acquitted. Many thought it was due to fear of retaliation. Wow. Oh. Some of the people, yeah, the, the gang, the band, 
Some of the people killed were Don Pridemore, Matt Baker, his brother-in-law, Henry Hauk, his cousin, Mark Hall, and many more. It's estimated he killed at least 13, but as many as 20 or more. What? Wow. In fact, papers at the time claimed 99. What? Wow. And every instance, Talton Hall's excuse was it was self-defense. Um. Then on July 4th, 1891, 25 years after the murder of Henry, Talton murdered the wrong person. He murdered the chief of police of North Norton, Virginia, Hilton. He was arrested and convicted, sentenced to death. Halton was hung on September 2nd, 1892, to a crowd of about 5,000. Wow. Yeah, people love hangings. That's a whole other podcast. They love hangings, and I think they were anxious to see Talton Hall gone. Yeah. Okay, so in that case, in that case, again, I'm going to mm-hmm. quote Chris Rock. I'm not saying I agree, but I understand. Yeah. Wow. So I have all sorts of information. Maybe at some point I can share it with you, uh, Zelda, and maybe we could do like a mini-sode or something where we share all the details of Talton Hall. I would love that because what kills me is like he had kids, like Mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. You know what's also interesting? So once again, we have a very sort of synchronistic and interesting intersection, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, this is not a blood relative, Mm -hmm. right? But you just have to wonder if these... If these really sort of egregious events impacted, injected into the family, a level of toxicity that wouldn't have been there otherwise, maybe. Well, remember, the relative is the person who is the victim. Yeah, that's what she just said. Yeah. But maybe it injected some sort of toxicity into the family. You know, if your relative got murdered by somebody who got off scot-free, does not inject, especially back then, it's going to inject a little bit of toxicity, I think. Yeah. Boy, do I have some Civil War stories for my family. So. (laughs) um, Oh, yeah? um, Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that's a whole thing. But yeah, I I think it is uh, the idea of generational trauma is one we're just now starting Mm -hmm. to tap into when you consider about it did you know okay we have people alive today whose parents were born into slavery in the united states it's for some families it is one slavery is one generation hold hold that thought hold that thought later we'll get there okay so the father of david henry and betsy was samuel maggard senior born in rockingham virginia in 1774 to john maggard and elizabeth eppert he lived to be 79 dying in 1853 a year after his wife whom he married in 1795 his wife being rebecca robertson born in 1778 in an article from the advocate messenger um newspaper of danville kentucky on august 2nd 1987 the Maggard family is featured, a nephew of Long Dave and his namesake, David M. Maggard. The article claims that Samuel was the son of a German immigrant and mother was an Irish immigrant. So I thought I wouldn't go much further back, but I was wrong, and I was amazed at what over 30 years of more records can access can uncover. While I was unable to find anything on the mother, it turns out that the first immigrant Maggard was Samuel's great-grandfather, Hans Jakob Maggard, born in 1690 in Switzerland. He was in colonial America by 1716. Wow. Hans was the son of Melchor Maggard of Reichenbach, Switzerland, where he lived his whole life from 1658 to 1730. Melchor would be Gary's eighth great-grandfather. Now, rather than go further with this point of the family, because I could... For time's sake, and we're already running pretty long, I'm going to cover Gary's grandmother's Gladys Bivin Ridgeway and her family. Here's what I find fascinating, Nice, is that you're like, I'm just not finding much. There's not much that's interesting. And I'm like going, holy crap, you like dug up a diamond mine here. 
You have all kinds of cool stuff about this family. What I is, is I forgot what I got. <laughs> and I was still working. And I just, I, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. What you were able to find is just really, wow. I love research. Okay. So, the Bivens family. Again, Gladys was married to Thomas Newton Ridgway Sr. And was grandmother to um, Gary. So, Gladys's father was Thomas F. Bet Bivens son of Andrew Jackson Bivens. Look at these names. And Mary Waldron. Yeah, back then you have a lot, especially, I mean, here in the United States, you have a lot of president's names, founding fathers' names, scientists' names. Like, I, yeah. Like, I have, I have an Isaac Newton Scott in my family. See, I love it. It's like, I just feel like they, I just feel like this family chose so well. Well, and <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting, too, that it's such an interesting dichotomy between these aspirational type names yeah, and mm-hmm. the fact that um, there seems to be a genetic disposition to, um, you know, below average IQ. Yeah. Yeah. For some of them, But yeah. I mean, yeah, but that's what I'm saying is there's like people who seem to be like really smart, really with it, really have their lives together. And then folks who are the opposite of that. You know, and you have people who are on their draft cards. They're quote unquote feeble minded. We have Gary Ridgway, whose IQ was in the low 80s. And, um, you know, which is at the bottom of average. Right. And then we have the, you know, his dad, who seems to be similarly situated. So I'm just I just find that so fascinating because genetics is so complex that you can have the exact same parents and have completely different expressions of how that comes together. So I just find it fascinating yeah absolutely and not to mention the fact that if we were to do so we you're doing this this you know this family tree but Mm -hmm. if we were to look at the genes that express right like an ancestry right you literally see so that point that point goes that point goes so deep and we hit that sort of necessary but impossible discussion of nature versus nurture too well it it all comes together though i think we really are a product of all the elements coming together at once and that's why i think it's it's great that people are wanting to get their dna checked and find their heritage but that only tells part of the story Uh so if anybody wants to hire me to do their family tree i'm willing to help you with the next part of the story you know i would like to ask you about that Mm -hmm. what do you charge for that sort of thing since i haven't done it a whole lot with other people i'm at the bottom end of what i'm charging charge ten dollars an hour okay we could discuss you know things and i could do a package deal where i'll do so much but i realized recently that on etsy there are people who are selling their services for genealogy research i'm like i need to do that and they're charging a heck of a lot more than ten dollars an hour Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. it sounds like you ought to honestly you're so good at this i mean you're so good at this and i just think that you know there has to be a way to make a side hustle from it Absolutely. I would love to. I would love to do that. Um, it's just, I, I'm not certified, but to get certified, it costs a lot of money. How much money? Like $500. If you need a backer, I will back you. <laughs> I know. It just also involves some time because mm-hmm. I would be on a time crunch to get stuff done. So I'm waiting until all the girls are at school again full time mm-hmm. and then I can look into doing that. But And it sounds it sounds like you really, 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 really ought to because I know I know people who do it. And I've got a cousin, in fact, who does it. Mm-hmm. And she's I like she does OK, but she does not. You, you put you put it in Sequoia, which I would argue is. <laughs> <laughs> There's some zhuzh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also watch shows like Finding Your Roots and Who Do You Think You Are? And we 
Chris for um, Father's Day, I got him a subscription to Family Tree magazine because he loves genealogy too. So I'm reading his magazines now, and there was a whole article on how they do the show for finding your roots and how they're presenting the information. And I'm like, I took those tips mm-hmm. to try to make things better. As so, I know our first couple episodes. I think we're getting better as we go, and how I'm telling the stories are better. Mm-hmm. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, we had some, we've always had great shows. The first couple yeah. were a little, you know, they were more amateur because we're still yeah. learning. But oh my gosh, every show gets better than the one before. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of which, let's continue. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Thomas Bibbins was born in post Civil War Mississippi in August 1868, the oldest of 14. Around 1890, likely in Texas, Thomas married Mary Sedona Bollinger, and she went by Dona. Dona was born in Missouri in August 1871, the daughter of Henry Bollinger and Rebecca Rickman. Both Thomas and Dona left their birth states before 1880 to relocate to Texas with their families. The couple left Texas and settled in Mangum, Oklahoma by 1892. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Their oldest child, Roy Thomas, being born there in April. They would go on to have four more children in Oklahoma, all girls. The family then made their way to New Mexico sometime between 1917 and 1922. Thomas worked different jobs from helping with his father's family to being a photographer in 1900. Wow. I know. And ultimately working as a carpenter. So there is some a lot of artistic ability that also seems to be running through this family. Yeah, definitely. Thomas died at age 63 in Roswell, New Mexico. Dona lived for several more years, dying in Carlsbad in May 1944 at age 72. A year after Dona died, son Roy Bibbins, Gary's uncle, found himself in a bit of legal trouble. He was a landlord and was being accused of violating rent regulations. I don't know how the case resolved, though. I know it wasn't long after that that his wife and his children left New Mexico while he stayed, and they went to Texas. I don't believe there was ever a divorce, but I don't believe they were married in the traditional sense anymore. But that wasn't all for him. No, no, there's more. Because I found the following article in the Albuquerque Journal on November 13, 1952. Roy T. Bivens serving an 18-month sentence on his conviction of striking a neighbor woman with a hammer. Ah. Uh-huh. Today appealed to the state Supreme Court. Bivens was sentenced from Chavez County for an assault on Mrs. Gertie Love, October 20, 1951, in a dispute over a fence. This is Gary's uncle. Wow. Okay, but I'm so excited. Poor lady. But I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to minimize that. Right. But it rears its ugly head. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's there. Bam. But I'm not sure what happened. And I don't, I'm not positive. I think it's possible this happened in jail. Roy died on July 9th, 1953, eight months later in Roswell. Wow. How old was he at that time? That's a good question. Hold on a second. What was the question? How old was Roy? Oh, okay. And what was his sentence? Do we not know? 1992. So he was, he was probably 61. And I don't know what the sentence was. I could not find the original sentencing. I looked in the papers, couldn't find it. All I found was that little snippet about the appeal. You're such a bad But I mean, you hit the woman with a hammer and you want to get the sentence overturned self-defense she tried to hit me with the fence wow and this is on his mother's side of the family yes wow well no no i'm sorry this is his father's side of the family that's grandma's right that was dad's mom's line grandma's sister so this is a great uncle wow Mm -hmm. i hear ding 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 yeah now gary's great-grandfather 
went by A.J. Bivens rather than Andrew Jackson. I love their names. A.J. was born to Hugh Bivens and Harriet Nolan on January 8, 1839, likely in Lauderdale County, Alabama. His family did remain in Alabama, moving north to Hardin County, Tennessee by 1842. <laughs> Sorry, north. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, north of them. I know. That's just cute. At the start of the Civil War, A.J. was 22, and he enlisted sometime between 1861 and 1862 in Company G, the 1st Tennessee Regiment for the Confederate Cavalry. Whoa. Yep, that's a Confederate one. Then, on February 3rd, 1863, at the Second Battle of Fort Donelson, he suffered a severe wound to his thigh and was captured by Union forces in Stewart, Tennessee. By April, A.J. was held for a short time at Gradiot State Prison in St. Louis, a POW. Wow. And that building no longer exists. Wow. I missed that because my son was being cute. He was um, he was sent to Gradiot State Prison, military prison in St. Louis. I, I do think it is interesting how many of our killers have had relatives that were captured by the Union and yes. stuck into prison for a few years. Because we had two at the same place, different mm-hmm. years with the same place. And then well, um, and then this guy, think, at Gratio. Keep thinking that way. Hold on. And you'll never guess, Zelda, where he was transferred to next. Tell me. The military prison in Alton, Illinois. I knew it. I knew the it. The same place. And same time range as Dorothea Puente's ancestor, as well as, oh gosh, who was the other one? Um, it was the doctor. The, um. Oh, Michael Swingo. Yes. Yes. Three days after he arrived, he was part of a prisoner exchange. Wow. What? So we have three people with ancestors who were all at the Alton, Illinois military prison in that spring of 1863. What? So is that another no. intersection? That's like, I don't know if you want to call it a synchronicity. It's weird. <laughs> it's, it is so strange. I decided I need to create a database. Intersection. With different information, especially around the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So I can see and maybe locations just so I can pull it up and go, who was there? Now, right. I don't know if you believe in demons, yeah. Uh, personally, I do. And I'm thinking there could have been a demonic infestation at that point that just Maybe. traveled down, traveled down the generations. Yep. That's why I'm talking about infection. That's exactly yep. why I'm talking about infection. Yeah. Well, six months later, in October of 1863, AJ was listed as a deserter, but he came back by December to serve his time in the Confederacy. Then in May 1865, A.J. was captured, again, along with his brother, his brothers, Elisha and John, in Mobile County, Alabama. One week later, they were paroled by Union forces in Gainesville, Alabama. Huh. Yeah, and that was towards the end of the war, and that's probably why they got paroled and released. Not long after returning home, A.J. married Mary Alabama Waldron around 1867, and she went by the nickname Bama. <laughs> That's cute. Now, Bama was 11 years his junior. Around 17 when they married, he was 28. Bama clearly was born in Alabama. <laughs> Just her name kind of gives it away. Her parents were Thomas Waldrop and Serena Garman. AJ and Bama would have two sons, Thomas, then Walter Lee. Bama died sometime between Walter's birth in 1870 and then in 1877. So sometime in there, she died. And she was quite young. Wow. I do love the Bama, though. I love the Bama. 
Well, Bama died young. She died between 1870 and 1877. Wow, that's, yeah. Okay, AJ remarried, this time to Mary Emma Wise. AJ was 38, Mary was 19. (gasps) The couple would have at least seven children. Pearl, James Albert, Wilmer, Lena, Jefferson Davis, Luther Yehu, and a stillborn son on April 23rd, 1896. And two days after the baby was buried on April 30th, Mary Emma died. <gasps> oh, my God. Do we know why? Why? I don't know. Do we know why? Oh, <laughs> no, but I'm assuming it had something to do with the birth. That's what I'm wondering. It was a childbirth. Yeah, I, that would be my assumption. Did they really give a child the middle name of Yahoo? Yahoo. It's J-E-H-U. Yahoo. Alrighty then. Yeah. Look at your face. (laughs) So, with a load of children, nine, although not all of them probably still living at home, but AJ married again, an even younger wife. Oh, come on. Miss Jessie Broom. AJ was 60. Jessie was, Jessie was 37. I thought you were going to say 13 and I was going to die. I know. At least she was an adult, but we're talking about an age gap of 23 years. Yeah, I kind of get that though. Was, did he have money? A wedding and mm-hmm. we'll get to that in a second. But okay. <laughs> literally in a second, because there was a wedding announcement placed in the Democratic Herald, a newspaper out of Mississippi. I like her. On November twenty third, eighteen ninety nine. Mr. A. J. Bivens of Tulia, Texas, and Miss Jessie Broom were married in Charleston, Mississippi, yesterday. Miss Broom is from Wesson and was visiting her brother. There is a tinge of romance about the marriage. Mr. Bivens was the first beau Miss Broom ever had. And after after a lapse of several years, during which time he had never seen his bride, he came to claim her as his own. Mr. Bivens is a wealthy cattle ranchman. Oh, there you go. Nice. <laughs> can we just can we just take a moment of silence for that tinge of romance? <laughs> <laughs> No, no, we may not. <laughs> well, the romance, the romance, yeah, the romance would not last. I just feel bad for Jessie, though. She's 37, and this is her first bow. Although you can kind of think about it. I mean, after the Civil War, a lot of the guys are dead. And oh, that's true. So there were a lot of women. There were way more women than there were guys. Same thing happened after World War II. Yes. True. Okay. But unfortunately, the marriage was short because Jessie died just nine months later from an illness. Uh, Not sure what illness, but an illness. Of course, A.J. rallied and married a fourth time to Nancy Lee Nanny Groves around 1903 in Texas. And all of his wives passed away. Yeah. Can we give him a nickname? I have a nickname. Okay. The Black Widow. Yes. Yeah. I'm wondering if he knew how to make arsenic out of flypaper because... I'm wondering if he had life ins- life insurance policies on any of them. You know, I think this might be a little mini episode because I yeah. like, wouldn't it be interesting if it turned out there were two serial killers in the same family? Right. But this one just killed his wives. Yep. Which is what Dorothea Puentes did. Puente did. Well, yeah. Well, actually, she didn't kill her husbands. Hmm? She killed all the people who came and stayed at her home. Oh, oh that's right. I'm getting her confused with um, the Black Widow. No, that Emma Hepperman. Emma Hepperman. Emily, I got Dorothea and um, Lita Southerd. Yep, I got I got my ladies confused. I apologize. That's okay. Apologize. Anyhow, the age gap was the greatest with this one. He was sixty-four when they married. She was twenty-five. Please tell me she outlived him. 
Together they had five children. AJ died when his youngest was around six years old, July 10th, 1921, in Tulia, Texas. She lived on. Wow. Go, girl. Now, before his death, AJ donated land for the Tulia train depot after the original depot burned in 1915. There's even a historical marker on the site with his name mentioned as being the donor. So how many children did he end up having by the end of all those marriages? I think it was 14. Damn. 14. Yeah. From there, I'm able to trace the Bivens line to Nathaniel Bivens, who was born in the first half of the 18th century. He and his family of at least 10 children lived in North Carolina. Nathaniel died in April 1818 in Anson, North Carolina. He was Gary's fifth great-grandfather. Now, A.J.'s first wife, mother of Thomas Bivens, Bama was the eighth of ten children to her parents, Thomas Wilcox Waldrop Sr. and Serena Garman. Bama came from a line of slave owners. The first clue to this was the 1870 census, where I found a young girl, a black child, living with a family. It was post-Civil War, but it made me wonder if this child had been a slave in A.J. or Bama's family before the war ended. The child was listed as Rebecca Bivens, age 11, born in Mississippi. She was unable to read or write. She was no longer with the family once they left Mississippi for Texas by 1880. I have no idea what happened to her, although I tried to find Wow. It. Now, looking at the Bivens family, while on the side of the Confederacy, they did not own any slaves. Um, I just have to interject. Oh. oh, do you have to take off? I probably do. But I'm glad you could join us. I know. I wish I could follow it through. This is so freaking fascinating. Well, you're just going to listen to the rest of it. No, well, I'm going to. <laughs> and we're about to get into some slavery here. So. Damn it. Jim. I know. I'm so mad. I'm going to miss the end of this. I'd have to listen to it later. It was so fun to participate. Oh, good. Super fun. I mean, I hope I wasn't annoying. No, you're no, fine. No, this is fun. I'm so glad you did this. This is cool. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to do this again sometime. I would love that. Okay, I'm having to remember where I was left off. Okay, so the Bivens families did not own slaves. The family of Bama did. In fact, she grew up with slaves or humans in bondage. I was noticing, I was watching a recent episode of Finding Your Roots, uh -huh. and I can't remember how he, they phrased it, but I loved how they put the humanity uh -huh. first instead of just calling it slaves. Uh -huh. For some reason, slaves makes it Distant. easier to remove. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. You'll notice, I'll, I'll call them slaves at times, and I'll call them you know, humans in bondage or something like that at different points because I don't want us to forget they were humans first. Okay, so let's talk about slavery and genealogy. For many Black Americans, tracing their tree can be, no, is especially challenging. As mentioned on a prior episode, the censuses from 1790 to 1840 only counted the number of people in a household, categorized by age and gender. They counted slaves in much the same way, although with less specificity on the ages. Starting in 1850, all household members were listed by name. Well, not all, because slaves were not listed by name. In both the 1850 and 1860 census, there was a special slave schedule. And on it, the head of household would be listed. And on each line, there would be the age and gender of the slave, but no name. My guess is that if they listed them by name, they'd have to admit they were people, not merely property. So when an American with black roots tries to find their family members who were enslaved, they often hit brick walls. It can only go usually to 1870, uh -huh. and then it's lost. 
And one of the things I enjoyed watching about finding your roots is I've always wondered how you research those black families, those African-American families. And I've learned quite a bit watching. Mm-hmm. I'm not great at it, especially coming from this angle. But anyhow, Thomas Waldrop was born in 1805 in Tennessee. He married Serena Garman, also from Tennessee, who was born in 1814. They likely married around 1830. She would have been 16. He would have been 25. And their first child was born in 1832. By the 1850s census, the family lived in Lauderdale County, Alabama. That's in the northwest corner of Alabama. Thomas worked as a farmer with real estate valued at $1,500 and seven children. Then I turned to look at the slave schedule. The family was listed as having two slaves, one boy, age seven, and a girl, age 11. And then there was a note by the girl, fugitive from the state. The girl had escaped and not been caught. Wow. So I'm rooting that the girl was never found and that she got away. Ten years later, the Waldrop's fortunes had improved greatly. The real estate value was $40,000. Wow. Using the same method as I used in the past, I found the value of an acre on average in 1860s Lauderdale, Alabama as being around $11. Now, knowing that they likely had a large home and slave housing, I decided to estimate that Thomas Waldrop owned 3,000 acres. Mm-hmm. I still think that's probably a lot more than he owned, but I used that number anyway. In 2018, the average cost per acre in Lauderdale was $2,300. If he really did own 3,000 acres, his land would well be worth close to $7 million. Wow. Thomas's personal estate was worth $9,400, or around $300,000 today. Why so high? His slaves, because mm. they were considered part of the personal estate. So many levels of wrong. Um, in 1860, the Waldrop family had eight slaves, two living and living in two slave homes. Five men and boys, ages 3, 6, 16, 22, and 26, and three girls and or women, ages 2, 19, and 22. My guess is that two-year-old girl was the Rebecca I found listed in the 1870 census living with A.J. and Bama. Thomas died in November 1875 in Vanola, Mississippi at the age of 70. His wife died 10 years later at age 71. And since they've died after the Civil War, by then all the slaves had been freed. But I have no idea their names or any of that detail. Interesting note, Thomas Bibbins' parents were not slave owners either, and possibly never were. However, Serena's parents were. So Thomas's parents didn't have slaves, Serena's did, they got married, and then Thomas had slaves. So Serena's father was Joseph German. It just got changed slightly to Garmin, I don't know why. And he was born around 1774 in North Carolina. By 1806, he lived in Williamson County, Tennessee. It's a county just to the south of Nashville. It was there he married Jean McCandless, or Jane, on November 20th, 1806. They did not remain in Tennessee and lived in Lauderdale County, Alabama by 1830. At that time, the family had seven enslaved people. Three young boys, one young girl, one girl aged 10 to 23, and one woman aged 24 to 35, and a man aged 36 to 54. That's how they counted them. Not much changed by 1840, other than the family moved to Monroe County, Mississippi, directly to the west of Lauderdale. But they had the same number of slaves, but seems not all the same people. They had four boys under 10 and three girls aged 10 to 23. By 1850, Joseph had expanded his farming and the number of bondage people. His real estate was valued at at almost $1,700, but as you will see, that does not begin to describe how vast his estate was. Because in 1850, Joseph owned 
18 human beings, including a three-month-old baby boy, two one-year-old boys, one one-year-old girl, little girls aged two, three, and five, and a boy aged seven. Of the remaining girls or women, they were ages 12, 21, 22, 26, and 27. And of the boys, they were 16, 25, 28, and 30. And I do believe I know the name of the 30-year-old male. Mm. We'll get there in a second. Because Joseph died eight years later in September 1858 at the age of 84, and he left a will with a complicated and vast estate. I read through close to 137 pages. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I say I read, but I skimmed parts because they weren't really relevant. Yeah. Amongst the papers was a list of properties sold. And since they saw humans with darker skin as property, well, they were listed in the records by name. Mm. I'm going to say names and who bought them for two reasons. Number one, because their names and their identities matter. And two, so maybe somebody looking for their ancestor may find them. I'm going to also create a special section on the webpage with their names listed. And I'm doing this because there used to be a website and it was the slave project. It was along this line of genealogy where people would post what they found in wills and names to help other people find their slave ancestors. But it hasn't been updated in a couple of years or so. Because otherwise I would have just gone to that website and given them my information. But since it's not there, I'm going to put it up on the website and maybe somebody will find a family member. I can only hope. This is who was bought by others. I just, uh, I hate those parts. But anyhow, um, there was a boy, Henry, sold to William T. Darden. And I believe this boy was born around 1847. A child named Orange, do not know if it was a boy or a girl, to J.M. Nolan. Lucinda to Nancy J. Stafford. Nancy, boy Carter, girl Martha to James Alexander. A man, Nelson, this is the one I believe was 30 in 1850. Woman, Aura. A boy, Hardy, to William M. Ogburn. Man, Hartwell, to Samuel Bolson or Tholson. Man, Sandy. Woman, Aggie. Boy, Jackson. Girl, Catherine, to Susanna Morris. Susanna would have been one of his daughters. Woman, Matilda. And child. Girl, Francis, to his wife, Jean. And I did try to locate the slaves going down. I was hoping I could find them and find their <laughs> descendants to see, but I was unable to do so. I did notice in 1870, many of the William Osborne's slaves lived together, including that Nelson. Okay. And they were living in Alabama. I want to finish up going over the Bollinger line. Quick reminder, Mary Sedona Bollinger was Gary's great-grandmother, married to Thomas Bivens, mother of Gladys Bivens. Mary, or Dona, was the second child of six born in Missouri, likely Madison County, which is 90 miles south of St. Louis. Her parents were Henry B. Bollinger and Rebecca or Becca Rickman, who married in January 1870. Becca was born in Madison County on April 26, 1851 to James Emery and Elizabeth Whitner. James was originally from Pickens, Alabama before moving to Missouri and met and married wife Elizabeth. They had seven children, remaining in Missouri until their deaths. The family situation seemed stable, even financially stable. And these are the third grades. Now, the Bollinger family itself was more than stable. In fact, they were likely upper middle class, but I get ahead of myself. Henry was born in May 1848 in Bollinger County, and like his father, he worked as a farmer, but seemed to have itchy feet and moved his family to Palo Pinto County, Texas by 1880, which is 676 miles to the southwest of Bollinger, Missouri. Why he would go there, I don't know. 
Polo Pinto is to the west of Fort Worth by at least 40 miles. Then sometime between 1889 and 1900, Henry and his family headed north, settling in Mangum, Oklahoma, which is 200 miles to the north. Henry died in 1901, age 52. His wife, Becca, would live in different parts of Oklahoma by herself after his death. So she didn't live with any of her kids mm -hmm. afterwards. First, she moved to Strauss Township to the east in Comanche County and then settled in Walters, Oklahoma, which is just 40 miles north of Wichita Falls, Texas. Becca died at age 78 in 1929. As you may have noticed, Henry's last name was the same as the county he was born. Mm -hmm. That would be because his great-grandfather, Daniel Ephraim Bollinger Sr., born May 1755 in North Carolina, was one of the original residents. Wow. And Daniel Ephraim was Gary's fifth great-grandfather. Now, you see, the county was named after Gary's fifth great-granduncle, Colonel George Frederick, or Fred Bollinger, Daniel's younger brother. Wow. According to Wikipedia, because yes, it's all on the Wikipedia page. There's a Wikipedia page for Bollinger County, Missouri, of course. And there's a Wikipedia page for George Frederick Bollinger. Mm. George convinced 20 other families to leave their homes in North Carolina in the fall of 1799 to settle in the area to the west of Cape Girardeau. Missouri. Now, keep in mind, this is before the Louisiana Purchase. It was under French control. In order to get the land, Bollinger had to sign a document saying that the settlers were all Roman Catholic. Huh. <laughs> Spoiler, they were not. Uh-oh. Most were part of the German Reformed Church. Not only did George convince his brother Daniel, who was married and had at least four children at the time, but he convinced brothers John, Matthias, and his sister Elizabeth, oh, and he also convinced the Limbaugh family. Yes, that Limbaugh family. It's his fault. Yes, I think this means we can blame Gary Ridgway for Rush Limbaugh. I feel that's fair. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One quick note, Gary's sixth great-grandfather was the original immigrant for the Bollinger family. Father of John, Daniel, Matthias, Elizabeth, and George, plus seven other children. Names, I don't know. His name was Heinrich Matthias Bollinger born in 1710 in Switzerland. He died in February 1776 in Catawba County, North Carolina. Oh, and one more thing about the Bollinger family. They were also slave owners in Missouri. Wow. Not as large as the German family, but slave owners all the same. And you can go, if you want to learn more about Bollinger County and George Bollinger, they're all on Wikipedia. This is the family tree of Gary Leon Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Oh my gosh, Denise. That's a treasure trove. Could you imagine if you yes. had a couple more months to work on it, the kinds of stuff you'd be <laughs> able to dig up? I, I imagine, but I was kind of done mentally. Yeah, I can understand that. I think what it is is, you know, I love doing my tree on occasion, but I had done it for so long. Mm -hmm. I kind of get a little bored after a while. because You keep hitting the same walls sometimes, and I just, I like doing new trees. It's just so exciting yeah. for me to discover. And then after a while, it's like, uh. Now, that said, I mean, there are some trees I've done that I would love to dig into more just because they were so fascinating. Mm -hmm. This tree, while it was interesting, <laughs> I didn't I didn't have that pull. And I wonder if it's I was feeling some of the just negative energy coming from some of it. Yeah. I mean, just seeing the vast amount of slaves owned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been talking about how did Gary come to be this way? And I can't help but feel that to some degree, I mean, there's other things going on, 
but with the history of slave owning and the family, maybe all lives aren't as valued as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of families in New Pasic, it really kind of depends on different factors, I think. Yeah. And he, he didn't discriminate between who he killed either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I want to end this on a high note for you. Ooh. So I want to see if you have, I thought this could be a new little thing. Do you have anything that you're watching or reading that you would recommend? Um, on the subject of serial killers? No, anything. anything. Just to be relaxed okay. and kind of take the weight of the serial killers off of us. My current obsession is Bridgerton. How many times have you watched it? I can't even count at this point. I just kind of have it on an endless loop <laughs> because um, I love everything about it. And admittedly, I'm incredibly uncomfortable with naked people on the screen. I don't like sex scenes. But everything else is phenomenal. And the costuming's beautiful. And the acting's lovely. And it's funny. And the more you watch it, the more you get little clues of things that happen later. And it's mm-hmm. like... It's all very cool, and um, and I am obsessed with this with this show. I I would highly recommend it to anybody who just needs a little bit of escapism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely escapism, and my uh, BFF um, is really into bodice ripper novels, and I make fun of her all the time for it, right? Right. Because you know, and so yesterday she took me to task for that. Because, of course, it is the ultimate bodice ripper. Oh, yeah. And she's like, I can't believe that you're not into bodice ripper novels. And even more, I can't believe you teased me about bodice ripper novels when you're a Brid- you are now a Bridgerton addict and we have to stage an intervention. And I just <laughs> had to own it. You know, it's like, yeah, you're right. I've been making fun of you pointlessly for many years now. Now you How see why. You? I mean, I love Bridgerton. I'm not watching it over and over, but I read the book before, long before... I saw it, so, because I'm also into the bodice strippers. <laughs> I mean, and I think part of it, your best friend and I are both moms, and I've discovered a couple things about bodice strippers that I like. Number one, they're quicker and easier read when you have kids around and madness going on. So I don't have to worry about getting into the book and getting yanked out. Mm-hmm. I can always pick up where I was last time. Number two, makes marriage a little bit more exciting. <laughs> that's funny especially mm-hmm. if you're dealing with kids and stuff you're not so the boss yeah. goes oh okay wait i am a woman yes <laughs> i really am I, right now i'm in between books so i don't have any books to recommend but i have been watching i have two shows to recommend one just finished and that is the mandalorian mm-hmm. on disney plus mm-hmm. Loved it. Love Baby Yoda, although that's not his name, and I'm blanking on his actual name. But And then I just started WandaVision. They've had their first three episodes. And I like the Marvel movies and all that. And WandaVision's a little different, but I'm loving it. That's so cool. I've heard so many good things about both of those shows. I haven't Mm -hmm. seen either of them. But um, WandaVision I'm a little hesitant about because it has all the... It feels like it's setting you up for this great emotional crash at the end. Yeah. And I'm just like not prepared for that right now because like my life has just been a series of emotional crashes the last few years. So. Well, in the last movie that Wanda and Vision were in, they both died. I'm wondering how that's playing into this. Yeah. And it's, it's like they're living in an alternate reality at the moment. 
and things are trying to intrude. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about yeah how this all play out. So I'm having fun with that one. Otherwise, you know, right now I got to find a new book. So I just finished one the other day. It was not the best. <laughs> it was a mystery. I just mm-hmm. yeah, developed it. The characters weren't re- really well developed for me. Okay. Where I, I didn't feel any, you know how, at least for me, when I'm reading a book, I want to feel connected to at least one of the characters. Uh-huh. It draws me in, wants me to keep reading. And I felt none of that. Oh, yeah. I hate that. Have it, Are you into sci-fi fantasy for books? Sometimes. It depends on the book. Yeah. Have you read The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan? The Eye of the World is his first. No, but I have it because of you. I And I probably never would. But because of you, I have it now on my to-read list. Oh, good. Yay. So I will get to it at some point. I'm obsessed. So, like, it's so good. And Amazon is coming up with a series. They're making a series out of it. It'll be launching next year. Well, then I'm going to have to at least read the first book so I know a little bit. But I do, I think I have it on my 21, 2021 reading list on Goodreads. Oh, fun. Yeah, it's so good. Anybody else likes to read, you can follow what I read and stuff on Goodreads. I mean, my name's Denise Gilhart on there. I mean, it's not. Yeah. How <laughs> cool. So, well, it was so great seeing you again, lady. It's been so long. So nice to see you, too. I'm glad we're kicking off 2021 with such an yeah. exciting episode. And I have a feeling this is going to be two episodes. I think so, too. Yeah. We've yeah. been recording for a while. And it was nice yes. to have Mira as part of all of it. So that yes. was fun. Uh, sadly, Mira had to leave towards the end um, because something came up at her house. But we are so thrilled to have her. We might have her join us again in the future. Mm-hmm. But so I don't know what the next one is going to be after this. I'm kind of playing with ideas. Okay. But since this is probably going to be two episodes, it gives me a little time. Yeah, for sure. But I know Rhonda Bell Martin is going to be coming up soon. Okay. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for another phenomenally, incredibly interesting episode. And I hope you have a great week. You too. Take care of yourself and for everybody out there, for everyone out there, maybe you have some skeletons in your closet you'd like to know about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.